I have a question for you today, right? This is what I want you to think about as we, we get into our, our text today. But what are you building your life upon, right? What, what are you building your life upon? What is it that you are, are living for? And, and I'm not only asking that to those of you in the room who maybe aren't believers in Christ, you're maybe new to the church, or you're just kind of checking Jesus out, whatever. That's not just a question for you, but that's a question for all of us in the room, even Christians in the room. What is it that we're truly founding our lives upon? You know, and, and in light of even yesterday, right? If I'm honest about my own heart, things like yesterday are, are opportunities where sometimes I'll start to go, man, look at what I've done, right? Look, look at the good that I've done. Like, look at what God uh, has allowed me to do, but look, but look what I did, right? I feel pretty good about what I am doing and, and even start to kind of build my life on the good that I'm doing. And I think that the reality is for a lot of us, whether you're a Christian or not, is that a lot of us, what we really live for functionally is we just want to be good people, right? We just want to be nice to people. We want to be kind. We want to be thoughtful. We want to be good people who do good things. And that makes us feel good about ourselves. And, and we just want to build on that. And, and I want to warn all of us today, that that's a dangerous, dangerous thing, right? It's a dangerous thing because what's happening when we think like that is that we're in, da- in danger of starting to build our lives on what we do, what we do ourselves, now we think, look, look how good I'm doing, right? Look, look at the good things I've done. Um, and, and, and it makes us feel like we're acceptable. It makes us feel like, you know, we're more worthy. And it's a flat-out lie. It's a flat-out lie. There's only one sure foundation to build your life upon. And it's not what you do. It's not what I do. It's, it's Jesus Christ and who he is and what he's done. That's the only sure foundation that we see. And we are responsible for how we respond to Jesus, right? We all have to respond. We're, we're responsible for our response to the gospel and to, to respond to how we're going to respond to Jesus, whether we'll respond in faith, whether we'll stumble over him and completely miss him. That's what we see in our text today, Romans chapter 9, verses, verse 30 through chapter 10, verse 13. I invite you to turn there in your Bibles. Uh, it's on page 946 in those Bibles on your row, uh, the ESV Black Bibles there. And uh, let's stand together. Let's hear from God's Word. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is, a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame." Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth 
and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for this opportunity to, to gather together to hear from your word. And, and I pray, Lord, that you would open our hearts to hear, um, to receive what you have for us today. Uh, for those in the room who don't know you, Lord, I pray that you would open their hearts to faith and that they would respond with, with confession and faith, that they would transfer their trust from themselves and their own efforts to the finished work of your Son. Lord, would you help those of us who've been walking with you to continue to remember and be reminded and, and to repent where we need to repent of the ways where we get off track, to be reminded of where our standing lies, where, where our hope is found, that it is in Christ alone and who he is and what he's done. And would you lead us to repentance? Would you lead us to rest in his finished work? And out of that, would you move us to love and serve, not to earn or to get, but because we already have the acceptance that we need. Father, would you have your way with us today? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may have a seat. The, the Apostle Paul, writing this letter to the, to, to the Romans, the Christians in Rome, um, the church in Rome, is continuing to address this issue of, of the Israelites and, and kind of their rejection of Christ, why so many of them have rejected uh, Christ as, as Lord and, and Savior. And it's a reality that Paul's heart, his own heart, just is broken over. He's broken over this. It, it, but someone might ask, why should we care about the Israelites? Like, why do we care? It's like some 2,000 years later, what does this have to do with us? Well, here's one reason you should care. Israel is really a representation, like a, a microcosm, if you will, uh, of the world's heart and attitude. Uh, I love how pa Pastor John Piper puts this. He says, Israel is the historical theater where the drama of every human soul is played out for all to see. What goes on inside you spiritually and every other person has gone on in Israel historically. And the story is told so that we can see ourselves. If you want to know your own spiritual condition before God as a human being, you can learn it from watching the history of Israel as it is interpreted in the Bible. And this is essentially the same thing the Apostle Paul said himself back in Romans 3.19 when we were there a couple months back. Now we know that whatever the law says, that is the Old Testament law for Israel, it speaks to those who are under the law, Israel, right? So that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. God speaks through his law, to, not just to, uh, to Israel, not just to make things clear for Israel, but to make things clear for all of us about where we stand apart from Christ and where, where our, our hope is found. You can see your own spiritual reality played out in, in what goes on with Israel, your own struggles, your own failures in Israel. Right? How, how many of us have, have read through the Old Testament? You're reading through the book of Exodus, and you're like seeing the Israelites. Right? God's led them through the Red Sea, saved them from the Egyptians. He's providing food and water for them, and, and they continue to just grumble and complain. And we're like, man, what, what dumb Israelites. 
And then we go leave that, close the book, right? Step into our life and just start grumbling, complaining about all the things that we're unhappy about. And we're like, oh, wait, right? Oh, wait, that, that's me. That's me. It's not just them. It's, that's me. We see, our, we see ourselves in the reality of what's going on with them. And the reality is whether we're talking about Israel uh, in, in Paul's day or people in our day, many stumble over Jesus. Many stumble over Jesus. Like this is the seemingly upside down situation that Paul describes at the, at the close of Romans chapter 9. Gentiles who, who did not have the full law of God, they only had kind of an imprint, uh, like an outline on their consciences in their hearts. Um, pagan unbelievers who we see depicted in Romans chapter 1 rejecting God and just pursuing sinful indulgence and pleasure and selfishness. Paul tells us that those Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. They've attained it. Somehow pagans living such wicked lives had, had a more, more of an openness to the gospel to receive the message of righteousness by faith. And just to be clear, the, the righteousness that Paul's talking about here is not like a, a moral goodness, but a positional righteousness of where is our standing with God? Are we, are we in right standing with God? On the other hand, he says Israel, who had the law, had the law plainly, and, and pursued righteousness through obedience to that law, has failed to, to succeed in attaining it because they sought to create a righteousness of their own, through their own religious performance, through their own moral goodness. They sought to build their own right standing with God by their own works. And so here's the shocking reversal. Right? Those who knew the most about God failed to come to know him. Right? While those who knew the least about God came to know him best. Or to say it a different way, th- those who wanted to, to be righteous ended up dead in their sins, while those who least wanted to be righteous ended up blameless and holy in his sight. How could this be, right? How could this be? Well, several, re- several years ago, I, I was uh, uh, running fairly often. Some of you look at me right now and you're like, running? It was like somebody in front of you with a donut or what? Uh, <laughs> Right? But a few years ago, I, I, I ran quite a bit more often, um, and I was in the middle of like a four-mile run, about two miles in, and I'm just going, just, you know, as a, for, a, a familiar route to me, and not really paying attention to like every nook and cranny on the sidewalk, just assuming that it's sidewalk, it's going to be safe, right, for me to run on, and I just completely, I hit this rock with my left ankle, just rolled it really hard, and I went like smack down on my face on the pavement. I mean, I was really hurt. Uh, it took me a little while to even get back up on my feet, and, and I slowly had to like humble, uh, hobble my way back uh, two miles to my car where I'd parked, um, and just doing the best I could get there because it was early in the morning and in the summer, and nobody was anywhere around where I was running. Um, so that's what I was, that's what I had to do, right? And why? Because I completely missed this rock, and I just tripped right over it. I just tripped right over it. It's the same thing that's happened here. Look at verses 32, 33, chapter 9. Why? Why have they missed it? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Paul quotes and kind of merges together these, these two different verses from Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, to show that the Israelites have completely missed Jesus and just stumbled over him. They just didn't see him. They didn't see him for who he was. They just tripped right over him. 
And the message of the gospel is that the, the righteousness that you need, right, the right standing with God, the acceptance with God that you need has been made available to you in the person and work of Christ, right? It's freely given to you as you respond to Jesus and just embrace him in faith. You put your trust in him. It's freely given. All you need to do, all you really can do is receive it. All you can do is receive it. And when you think on that message, it, it makes a lot of sense of this upside-down situation. Right? You, if you think about the ways in our day that, that different people respond to the gospel, religious, moral people versus irreligious, unbelieving people, and how they respond to the gospel today, the message of Christ. Irreligious people often, like, like they trample the gospel, do they not? Right? We're just like, I'm going to reject and just dive into sin. I'm not really concerned about it. But what happens a lot of times is many times down the road, they realize the, the, the emptiness of that pursuit, the emptiness of, of rejecting everything and just kind of pursuing my own selfishness, pursuing my own pleasure, and how it doesn't deliver what they're looking for. And then and down the road, they become more open, possibly, to responding and receiving the gift of Christ's righteousness. They, they see their need for rescue. They're more open to that. But religious people tend to be uh, less honest, a little more blind to our sin. We tend to just not really be open to seeing it because we, we think, well, I go to church. I go to a community group. I serve. I give. You know, I'm doing these things. I, I'm okay, right? God accepts me because I'm doing all these things, and, and we can be blind to our need, Right? I mean, the gospel is offensive to that mindset because the gospel comes in and says, no, that's not good enough. That will never be good enough, right? Your work will never build up a right standing that you can actually stand on. It will dissolve underneath you. You, you will have nothing if it's on what you do. You know, I, the gospel is offensive to the religious moral person, and not just religious people, but moral people. I have a, I have a relative in our family that this is his great roadblock to the gospel, because in his mind, he's not a religious person at all, but definitely has a morality that he uh, ascribes to. And, and, and he, he, he just cannot believe or understand how his wife, who he sees to be this just wonderful, and she is. She's a wonderful woman, this good woman who does good. She's kind to others. She, she's selfless and gives and does all these things. How can my wife, who does not believe in Jesus, be left outside of heaven, right? How can she be, you know, sentenced to hell because she has not responded to Christ with faith, while the guy in prison, right, the murderer in prison, the, the robber, the, the, the thief in prison who, who's sitting there has done so much wrong in their life can simply put their trust in Christ and be saved and be in. Right? He's like, I, I cannot accept that. So it's offensive. It's offensive to that mindset. It, the gospel seems too easy, and so it offends and if the religious person isn't offended by it, then the temptation is to just reinterpret the gospel, right? To fit into your kind of performance grid, right? Okay, well, Jesus did that for me. That's my entry point. But now, now I will maintain, I will keep my standing with God by what I do, right? I will, I will perform so that I maintain his acceptance. I maintain his approval. I'll kind of weave it and fit it together, and so here's why the Israelites and why so many people stumbled over Jesus, because faith in him requires, requires that we own our own inability, our own inability to ever measure up. And it requires that we lay down any notion of our own self-righteousness and receive his. We receive his. 
So long as you pursue salvation as if it were based on your works, on your effort, your merit, you will stumble over Jesus. You'll trip right over him. You'll completely miss him. That's what happened to the Jews in Paul's day. And they had every advantage, right? They had every advantage to see that Jesus is the one, that whoever believes in him, that, the, that one will never be put to shame. Yet they completely missed him, tripped right over him in their own self-righteousness. And, and this points to the reality for us that everyone has to do something with Jesus, right? Everyone has to do something with Jesus. There, no one gets to be Switzerland, right? You understand that? Like, no one gets to just be neutral, say, I'm going to abstain. I'm not going to do anything with him. Like, you do something with Jesus. Everyone has to respond in some way. You have to do something. And here is the truth. Jesus is either going to be the rock that you found your life upon, or he's going to be the rock that you stumble over. He will be one or the other. There's no middle ground. And Paul's making clear that we are all responsible for how we respond to the gospel. And, and I know some of you, we've had some conversations as we've been through Romans 9 uh, over the last couple months because we split it up, right? That uh, some of you are right now like, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. Romans 9, we were just talking about how salvation is, is all by God's sovereign choice, is it not? We, we saw in those illustrations what, 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 what Paul was saying in Romans 9, that he's made it clear that salvation depends on God's choice alone, Right? We saw that in the illustration of, of Abraham and his sons Isaac and, and Ishmael. We see it in Isaac's sons, Jacob and Esau. That illustration plainly said in Romans nine sixteen, as we were looking at Moses and Pharaoh. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. But now at the end of the chapter and into chapter 10, Paul's saying that we're responsible for our response to the gospel. That it's our responsibility whether or not we, how we respond to Jesus. Is he contradicting himself, right? It, what's, what's Paul doing here? And we could assume that. You could assume that, but I think you wouldn't be giving Paul much credit, right? This is, this is a pretty sharp guy. Right? Even if you deny the, the truth of Christianity and the inspiration of the scriptures, you have to give Paul some credit. In fact, I think you would actually, if you deny all that, you'd have to give Paul more credit for, for being a guy who kind of largely develops this, this theology and movement and strategically begins the movement of Christianity to become the, the greatest religious movement in the history of the world, right? So this isn't a guy who probably just accidentally, unwittingly, or, or definitely not on purpose, is just going to contradict himself a couple sentences later. I think we should give him a little more credit. So what do we make of this? Well, it's just like what we talked about last week, Right? Paul and the rest of the Bible, they're, they're content to hold these two truths together. That God is absolutely sovereign over all things. And yet we are, are responsible for our actions. We're responsible for, for our attitudes and for our thoughts. We're responsible for, for what we do, our behavior. Right? It might help to go back and listen to the, 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 the past couple sermons here. But the Bible is content to hold these two truths together. And to not like, have to have a, this reconciliation of all the nuts and bolts of how they work together. But rather to just hold and be content that God is sovereign over all. And we are responsible for what we do. We are responsible for it. And to hold those two together. In the great debate in the Bible between does God choose you or did you choose God. The Bible says yes. Right? That's the Bible's answer. Yes. Yes. But the order is important. If God didn't first choose you, you wouldn't be able to choose him. But you are responsible 
for how you respond. You're responsible for your actions. And Paul firmly holds those together. He holds God's sovereignty over our salvation, but he is, he's no cold theologian, right? Look at verse 1, chapter 10. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. Do you see his heart? He's broken over his, his Jewish brothers and sisters who have rejected Christ. His, his heart breaks over that. And notice that, that because Paul believes the truth about who God is, because he cares about the people around him, what does he do? He prays. He prays. Right? This, this, is, this is huge. This is so convicting as I was in this this week. Like, our prayer lives, whether we pray and what we pray, greatly reflect what we actually desire in our heart, what we actually believe in our heart. And so here's Paul. His heart's desire is that his Jewish brothers and sisters would know Christ, that they would be saved. And so what is his, what is his prayer life like? He is praying before God. God, would you save them? Would you save them? Would you move? What about you and me? What about our prayers? You know, so much of my prayers are like, God, protect my kids. You know, God, give them good friends. God, do this for us. Do that for us. Rather than, God, would you purify my heart? God, would you purify my, my son's heart, my, my daughter's heart? Would you purify our hearts? Would, would you save those around us? Would you move in our lives, do a work in their life that, that sets them on fire for you? Like, that's how I've, I've been repenting and responding in prayer this week as I prayed over my kids at night. God, would you do a work in their heart? Would you grab a hold of them and give them a passion for your word, a passion for people, that they would take your gospel to them and you would do a mighty work for your glory in their life? Like that's how I've been responding in repentance. And unfortunately, that's not how I always pray, right? That's not how I always pray. And I'm, I'm sure if, if you're honest, that's not how you're praying all the time. Whether we pray, what we pray reflects what's on our hearts. What are we burdened for? Well, here's Paul's particular burden. In, in verses 2 and 3, right, he's broken because he understands, right? For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. He acknowledges that the Jews have a real zeal for God. Like they are passionate for God. They have a real zeal for what they believe in. But the problem is, is, is that what they believe in is, is not true. It's not true. They've missed it. It's an ignorant zeal. It's an ignorant zeal. And this is, this is a problem because what do we say in our, in our culture today? It doesn't matter what you believe in as long as you're sincere. As long as you're sincere in that faith. As long as you're sincere in that belief. And, and Paul says the Jews, they're, they're zealous in their beliefs, but their beliefs are dead wrong. They're dead wrong. Zeal without knowledge is fanaticism. By definition, that's, that's what it is. It's fanaticism, and that's dangerous. The idea, the notion that it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere in what you believe is complete and total nonsense. Amen. Right? Terrorists have a real zeal for what they believe in, but I think we would all say that it, it does matter what they believe or not. Right? It does matter what they believe. Like, you could have a sincere love for your neighbor, and they have a, a real severe peanut allergy. And in your sincere love, you bring them some cookies with peanut butter or peanuts in them. And you feed them to them. And in your sincerity, it's dangerous for them. It might even be fatal for them. Right? 
Zeal without knowledge is, is, is a dangerous, dangerous thing. But here is the real sad thing to Paul. Israel remained zealous and ignorant, not because the information they needed wasn't available to them, not because they didn't know about their neighbor's allergy, right? But because it wasn't the information that they wanted it to be. It wasn't what they wanted to hear. So they rejected it. Even though God had told them in Isaiah 64, 6 that all their righteous acts were like filthy rags, they still wanted to base their standing on their own moral performance and refused to submit themselves to Christ's gifted righteousness for them. Israel's responsible for their own rejection and without excuse because they should have known better, right? That's what Paul goes into here in verse 4 and following. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. This is like an in-your-face statement if you're a moralist, you're, you're religious. Christ is the end of the law. He's the end of legalism. He's the end of trying to build your life on what you do. He's not saying that God's law no longer, is, is, uh, no longer matters, it's no longer binding over us, but rather he's saying that the Christ has ended the law as a way of acceptance, as a way of righteousness, as a way to be right with God. Verse 5, he, he quotes Moses. For Moses writes about the, the righteousness that is based on the law. That the, the person who does the commandments shall live by them. Now, if you read that, this is a quote from Leviticus 18, 18 verse 5. And it could seem that Moses is advocating that, yeah, so pursue obedience to the law. That can make you right with God. But what, what he's really saying is, if, if you could keep all of the law perfectly, then yes, by by hypothetically, you could be right with God. You could have a right standing with God. But it's a big if because none of us can do that. No one can do that. No one is perfect. I mean, we can all acknowledge that. I mean, even those who don't know Christ can acknowledge I'm not perfect, that I make mistakes, that I do wrong. And Paul quotes Moses again to contrast the righteousness that is by faith, um, quoting Deuteronomy 30, verses 6 and 7. Um, but, but the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven. That is to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss. That is to bring Christ up from the dead. Here's what faith understands. Faith knows that you don't need to do anything. You don't need to do anything to be right with God. But respond in faith in Christ. Right? But trust him. You don't need to climb yourself all the way up to heaven, scale the mountains to get to heaven by yourself, for, because Jesus has already come down. He's already come down from heaven and lived the righteous life you never could. You don't have to pay for your own sins, plumb the depths and, and pay for your own sins and your own death, because Jesus has already died the death that you deserve for you on the cross. And by quoting Moses to make this point, Paul's making it clear that, that even Moses understood this. Even Moses knew that, that, law, that more than law-keeping is required to be right with God. More than just doing good is required to be right with God. And God in Christ has done all that is required. He's done it all. He's paid it all. And the word is, is near you. And this is the only way of righteousness. Right? This is the only way. This is the only way to be made right with God. So what's involved? How, how do you get right with God? Look with me at verses 8 and 9. Right? But, but what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. 
The word is near you. The word of faith, the gospel, right? The gospel it is near you, is proclaimed. It is both a truth that must be known and it's a truth that must be believed. It's a truth that must be known and a truth that must be believed. First, in other words, there's, there's a specific content, right? There's a truth that must be known. There's a content that you need to hear. There's a specific content involved. And, and the first Part of that content involves the person of Christ, who he is. Jesus is Lord, Paul says. Jesus is Lord. This isn't a bumper sticker, right? Jesus is Lord. This isn't like a sign on the highway, Jesus is Lord. This isn't something we just say. This is a statement about who Christ is, that he is God. He is God in the flesh. He is Lord. He's, he's not only God, but he has authority over all things, over all things, the earth and all that is in it, including you and your own life. He has authority over all of it. All right, that's part of the content, who Christ is. The second part is the work, right? God raised him from the dead, which is a shorthand for saying that we must believe that Jesus lived the sinless life we never could, that he died the death for our sins that we deserve, that he was raised victorious over Satan, sin, and death, that he's victorious over the grave, right? That we are acceptable with God because of what he has done, that he's finished it all, there's a specific content, who Christ is, what he's done, that we must respond to. But it's also a truth, the gospel is also a truth that must be believed. You must confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you must believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. In the Bible, the heart is it's not just like warm feelings in my heart about Jesus, right? The heart is a representation for the whole of the person. The whole of the person. In other words, you need to trust your whole self, your whole life to Christ. You need to transfer your trust from you and your own efforts to Christ and his finished work, to who he is and what he's done. It's a transfer of trust to confess and believe. That's, that's the faith that saves. Confession and belief go together. Like This is not like some like, magical rite ceremony that we have to go to. Well, you have to say these words, and then you have to do this. Like, this is a, these go together, confession and belief. Like if, if you confess something and you don't believe it, it's empty, is it not? Like it's, it's worthless. That's not real. You, it doesn't matter if you say Jesus is Lord if you don't truly believe that he's Lord. It's worthless. But likewise, if you believe you believe in what he, who he is and what he's done, but you're unwilling to confess that? Well, that's, that's inauthentic at best, right? They go together. If you truly believe, you're going to confess that belief. You're going to tell that you believe. You're going to say that you believe. And if you truly mean your confession, then it comes from something within you that you have transferred all of yourself from, from relying on your own efforts to relying on Christ and his work. They go together. That's what Paul's showing us as he restates in verse 10, right? For with the heart one believes and is justified. With the mouth one confesses and is saved. Confession and belief are two sides of the same coin. Likewise, justification, being made right with God and salvation, go together too. Two sides of the same coin. And see God's promise in verse 11. For the scripture says that everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. In other words, when you transfer your trust to Jesus, when you truly give yourself wholly to him, you will not regret it. You will not regret it. You will not regret that decision. We're reminded here that there's no distinction, right? That, that Christ's salvation is not just available to this people group or that people group. 
Verse 13, it says, For everyone, Jew or Gentile, religious or irreligious, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's the good news of the gospel. Jesus has lived for you. He's died for you. He's been raised for you. He's done it all to secure your right standing with God. That you can be not only forgiven of your sins, but brought all the way into the family of God, adopted as his own sons and daughters. He's done it all. He's done it all. And faith is in Jesus, that response to transfer your trust, is the only way to be made right with him. Right? He's the rock that you're either going to build your life upon or, or trip over. I didn't grow up in a Christian home at all. Like we were, I, I, I tell this as a joke now, but we were like New Age Christmas and Easter people, which doesn't make sense when you think about it. You'll go home and laugh later. Um, we went to like a weird New Agey church at Christmas time and Easter. Like they're not Christians. Um, that's what we did. And so I didn't grow up with a foundation in the faith and in the church, but God got a hold of my life in college. The first three friends I made when I went away to college were all Christian guys who began sharing the gospel with me and pouring into me. And before that time, though, as God worked in my life in college, I sought to build my life on what I did. You know, when I was a young kid, it was like, I'm going to be a sports hero, right? I'm going to be the great baseball player, great basketball player. And then that didn't pan out how I hoped it would, right? Um, and then it was like, okay, well, I'm going to devote it all into my academic success. And, and I did well in school, but, and then I had a really bad uh, freshman year, first semester, sophomore year was really, really bad at college due to some other things in my life, but, but it just fell on my face in that, right? And it didn't continue to deliver the hope that I was wanting to find in that. And then I pursued relationships. I thought, oh, if I find the right girl, that will make it all better, and it continued to not deliver and, and not deliver what I was looking for. And eventually, I got to this like just low point in my life, my, my junior year of college. And the same three friends I met at the beginning of freshman year, even though I had been kind of bailed on them at various times, continued to pursue me, continued to love me, continued to point me to Jesus. Right? And I found in that moment the only sure foundation, the only sure foundation that I can stand on. The only acceptance that delivers what I'm looking for and does not disappoint. Right? If you're not a Christian, I invite you to make that response today. To confess, to believe, to transfer your trust to Christ. But if you are a Christian, I'll be honest with you. Since that moment when I was 20 years old, a junior in college, even up to like this week, I continue to struggle. I continue to look away and think, well, look what I'm doing Look at the good I'm doing, and, and I can be tempted to start to build my identity on being a pastor, on being a, a, a husband, being a father, being the things that I'm doing and how well I'm doing or how well I'm not doing in those things. And I need to be reminded again and again and again, I need the gospel too. I need to be brought back to the reality that there is no sure foundation that I can stand on except for Christ alone. And I need to repent of the ways that I seek to build an identity for myself and come back and rest in his grace and in his mercy. Right? I pray that, that if that's you today, if you're a Christian, that, that you don't just reject this as a word for, for those who don't know Christ. Right? I know this verse. I know these verses. This, this is for those who don't know Jesus, to confess and believe. No, don't do that. But search your own heart. Where are the ways that you are seeking to build an identity for yourself in your own work? Repent where you need to repent and rest in his finished work. 
Right? We are absolutely called to do good. Right? We, we, are, it's ex- we should celebrate what, what God did here yesterday. We're called to do good. We're called to pursue holiness, but not to get a standing from God, not to get his approval, not to get his acceptance, but because we already have it, because we already have it and we know how good it is and we want others to know about that. We do good not because we're trying to get something from God, but we do good out of a heart that's overflowing with the scandalous grace of Jesus Christ. And we are, we are desperate to see others in our city know that grace, know that mercy, know that forgiveness that we know. That's what we do. That's why we do it. We're going to share in the Lord's Supper here in just a moment. And as we share in this meal, this is yet another opportunity for us as believers to be reminded who Jesus is, what he's done, where our standing rests, where it's sure, where we can have a sure foundation and stand on him. This is an opportunity for us to continue to confess and believe that Jesus is Lord and that he was raised from the dead to reflect on who he is and what he's done. Believers, you're invited to come and share in this meal, to share in the bread representing Christ's body that was broken for you, the cup representing his blood shed for you. The way we share in this meal here is we tear off a piece of the bread, we dip it in the cup, uh, we offer both juice and wine to take as your conscience leads you. The wine is in the glasses marked with twine. If you're not a believer, this is a meal reserved for Christians, but, but this is an opportunity for you in these moments to respond to the gospel to take Christ, to confess, to believe, to transfer your, your trust and your hope from yourself fully to him. Uh, pastors will be here in the back. We'd love to visit and pray with you. Uh, let's continue to worship. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this, this time to come together. And we pray, I pray uh, by the power of your Holy Spirit that you'd move people to respond right now, to receive Christ, to transfer their trust, and to, to receive that full assurance right now that, that those who put their hope in him will not be put to shame. They will not regret it. That they will have the acceptance that they, they've longed for in you alone. Holy Spirit, would you move us to, to repent where we need to repent, to, to confess and, and believe and, and rest in the finished work of Christ. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.